Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 12. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mishael, Malchijah, Hashem, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Maaseah, Kalita, Azariah, Josabat, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way, to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Amen. Please be seated. Let me begin with prayer. Father, we do ask that you would bless us as we meditate on your words. Lead us into your truth. Give us strength to listen, to hear, to open our hearts. Help us to understand, to see that we, like your people long ago, might uh, weep, but also, Lord, rejoice, knowing that uh, the joy of the Lord is our strength. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So today is Reformation Day, if you didn't know that. Uh, Reformation Day is 
A day when Protestant Christian churches around the world celebrate the movement that in the 16th century led to their formation out of the Roman Catholic Church at that time. And among the important things that these reformers who were part of that movement wanted to see happen is they wanted for God's word to be opened and explained to the people. You see, among many of the Roman Catholic churches of that time, the reading of God's word had sort of just become this mysterious liturgical act. The Bible was read in a language that people could not understand, and it was then explained little or not at all. As a result, people were starved, and they were easily led astray. What a different picture we have here in the book of Nehemiah, right? These verses we just read. Everywhere in this text, the priority is to understand. If we were to keep reading in the book of Nehemiah, we would find that this incredible event is really the beginning of a reformation. Bill summed it up for us really well. It's the, it's the hinge between the building of the walls of Jerusalem and this change in the lives of these people. And it all begins with the importance of understanding God's words. That's what I want you to see in this text today, the importance of understanding God's words. I'll seek to make this point clear to you through three points. And we'll begin with point number one, the pursuit of understanding. God's people in this text, they, they do things to pursue understanding God's message. They are active, thoughtful participants. So my first point, the pursuit of understanding. Growing up, I was um, primarily homeschooled, and you know, one of the bonuses about being homeschooled was that you kind of get to decide in what order you want to do things. At least when you're older, I did. I got to decide, you know, what I, what I wanted to do first, what I wanted to do last. And this meant that usually my favorite topic was the thing I did first, and my least favorite topic was the thing that I groaned through for the rest of the day. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but my priorities were reading first, math last. But there was one part of reading that would slow me down. I would, you know, I whip through the chapter. I, was, I loved the reading part. But at the end, there was a list of vocabulary words. And for each word, I had to look up the word in the big fat dictionary I had to write in my notebook the word, a definition, and then I had to use the word in a sentence. It was terrible. Uh, but, uh, and, you know, and you know, sometimes I would cheat, I would even make it worse, because I would read two or three chapters, and then I'd have two or three times the words to do at the end, so it was even worse. But here's the thing about this, right? It helped me to grow in my understanding. That intentionality uh, made books more and more enjoyable to me. And it's intentionality that we see here in Nehemiah. They're working at this process. 
for God's words to be understood, the listeners and the speakers must be intentional. They've got to pursue understanding. So what do they do here? What do you guys see as you look at this text? What do they do to pursue understanding? Well, first, in terms of the people, notice that they're engaged, right? Uh, they're, they're expectant. They prioritize this event. I'm going to give a little more context here, although Bill already did an excellent job just giving you guys the, the picture here. They, they've just finished rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem. This is 445 B.C., uh, as Bill mentioned, Jerusalem was destroyed. They were all exiled. Now they've come back in, in waves, and, and they've just finished the walls only days before this event. And this has not been easy work. Um, there's not many of them. They're poor. Many of them lived out in the country. So during the building, they've been sort of just camped out inside the walls of the city with their families. Uh, they, they faced lots of opposition. You can read the beginning chapters of Nehemiah and see that. They faced death threats. There were points where with one hand they're working, with one hand they're holding a weapon to fend off their enemies. This has been exhausting work. And of course, the whole time, it's not like they've been working in their fields or building their own homes. But they finally finish. They get sent home and they come back only a few days later. But it's not begrudging, right? It's, you know, all those religious leaders always trying to get us to show up and listen to them talk, right? That's not what it looks like here. This is what they want. You see it right there in verse 1. They gathered as one man. They were united in their desire to hear God's word. Uh, they tell Ezra, he doesn't decide to do it, they tell him, bring out the word. We want to hear God's word, the law of Moses. That refers to the first five books of our Bibles, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books. And, you know, notice, this isn't some sort of um, special gathering just for the really, really religious people. We've got the women, the men, and all who could understand what they heard. Right? That's sort of a unique way to refer to any children with a basic understanding of words and their meanings. The narrator says it this way to emphasize his point that the purpose of being there is to understand. That's the point. That's why they're there. Uh, verse 3 says their ears were attentive and the reaction throughout the rest of the text shows us that they were paying attention, right? I mean, notice the detail in verse 5 where they're watching Ezra. And so as soon as he opens the book, they stand up. They didn't need to be told, like I told you guys in the beginning, to stand up. They, they see him open the book, and they stand. They're ready. They want to hear. Standing was a sign of respect. He blesses the Lord, and they answer, amen, amen. That means it is true. It is true. They lift their hands, they bow their heads in worship. Right, can you picture this event just a little bit? This would have been approximately thirty to 50,000 people. Uh, verse 3 indicates this event went on for about six hours. Now, this is a unique event, right? This is a special happening in their lives. They, they weren't doing this every weekend. And yet... We should be challenged by their thirst, their intentionality, 
their priorities. They are in pursuit of understanding God's word. And they will receive the reward. But it's not just the listeners who are pursuing understanding. The readers and speakers are doing so as well, right? Um, You'll probably notice a few things. Even though this feels sort of spontaneous, clearly it was planned for, right? Because they set up this wooden platform there. Uh, And and we're not talking about just a little riser here. Um, The word is usually translated tower. In fact, this is the only place it's not translated tower. So this would have been a tall platform, and it's got to be tall for 30,000 people to be able to see and hear. This is a pulpit. Uh, maybe, maybe some of you have been in some of those old churches where the, you see the pulpit, and it's like way up there. You, you practically would have to climb a ladder to get up to that pulpit. Uh, and the reason for this is, you know, partly it's putting God's word in a place of respect. It's, it's visualizing the authority of the word. But uh, part of it is also just making sure everyone can see and hear. Right? There are practical things we can do to pursue understanding. But the second thing the readers do here, those who are reading God's word, is they explain. Right? That, that probably stuck out to you a bit. They explain what the text means. So you'll notice uh, down in in verse 8, it says they gave the sense so that the people um, could understand, or so that the people understood, in fact, the reading. Um, In other words, you know, Ezra, he's not just reading straight through the first five books of the Bible at them. Uh, Likely, he and these other 13 guys, I, I read their names for you, they were sort of taking turns reading sections, probably, from the Bible. We're not sure exactly how this went, but probably something like they, they took specific sections, or maybe they read through the beginning of the, of, of the books, but they wouldn't have gotten too far in this amount of time. And then um, perhaps the people sat, and the Levites, those other 13 guys who I read their names, they're mentioned in verse 7, they would then explain the text that had just been read to the people. Maybe they would split the people into 13 smaller groups, or maybe they would move through the people. We don't know. Again, it doesn't tell us the exact details. Um, But if you're following along with me, you can see in verse 8, it says, they read from the book, uh, from the law of God. And that they refers to Ezra and his 13 helpers. Um, And then it says that they did that clearly, which uh, could also be translated paragraph by Paragraph. So again, sort of one section at a time they were moving through. And then it continues, and they, which refers to the second group now, not the first group, the second group, um, the Levites who are on the ground, not in the platform, they gave the sense, right? You see, there's, there's this intentionality where specific individuals who have been chosen, trained, and, and taken time to prepare help explain what the text means to the people. And this is really one of the foundational texts for how we understand what preaching is, what preaching should look like. The goal is for people to understand what God says. 
Uh, the goal is not for the preacher to come up with, you know, something he wants to say and then find some Bible passages that lend some authority to what he wants to say. Uh, that might be a lecture, but that's not preaching. I want you at the end of the sermon to say, of course that's what God is saying to me here. It's so clear. It's that clarity of uh, the purpose of the text and the application of the text that we want to communicate. And, and so we want to see here that a key part of pursuing understanding is, is listening to uh, God's words explained by godly teachers and preachers. This is one of the most important ways God says his church will grow. He teaches us that. But what happens to us when we do understand the word? Verse 9 tells us that the people wept as they heard the words of God's law. So let's look at my second point, the grief of understanding. The grief of understanding. I remember one day as a child when uh, the reality of sin and judgment really hit home for me. All of a sudden, it was like I could see it very clearly. I understood what it meant. And I uh, went to one of my older brothers weeping to confess that I had stolen candy from him. And, and you know, he was so shocked and surprised by this whole situation, he ended up giving me the whole bag just to calm me down. That was a specific and powerful moment of understanding. It, it, I could see in my life. And yet, of course, right, as, as Christians, we, our lives are full of those moments, and it's not all just stealing candy from our sibling. And where again and again, we understand the beauty and the purity of God's law in shocking contrast with the way we treat God. The, the guilt, the shame, the sadness. This is always part of understanding God's words to you. This is why a sermon that only entertains you or never makes you feel a bit uncomfortable or sad or even attacked may not be grasping everything that God is saying. It's a broken relationship that you have. You do not consistently bow down to your creator. And, and when you see his purity and his goodness in his words, the distance between you and, and the one who fulfills you, it seems to yawn before you, right? Like a ship drifting away from shore. This is where the people of Israel are. As the reading finishes in, in verse 8, we're not told the exact reason here why they weep, but some of the verbs used here are specific enough to make it clear to us. Um, the verb in verse 9, mourn, that's used either when someone's death is mourned or uh, when God's judgment for sin is mourned. The death wouldn't fit in this context, so we know that's what they're mourning. They're mourning this vision that they've had of God's judgment as they've listened to, you know, the history of their people recounted for them. 
Over six hours, it's been read and explained to them. They've listened to God's clear warnings again and again. Come back, come back. Don't go that direction. This is what will happen. And their forefathers went. And what God said happened. And they mourned. And then there's that verb, uh, grieved, in verse 10. Um, We only see that used in the Bible where in situations where a person is grieved because of how someone they love has been treated. And so um, in 2 Samuel 19, Jonathan is grieved because of how shamefully Saul, his father, is treating David. And that shameful treatment of God is exactly what anyone who, who reads through the first five books of the Bible will see if they love the Lord. Humanity's treatment of God is agonizing again and again. And so they grieve. Maybe some of you feel that conviction today as you see how much these people valued God's words. They say, Ezra, read us the book, right? As that same book that you have multiple copies of is sitting on the shelf, gathering dust. They rise up on their feet as the word is opened. These are God's words. They are thirsty to hear, to understand them. Their hearts are not closed. They're open, they're soft. They're willing to weep when his message becomes clear. This is not a wrong response. Understanding God's words will do this to us. If it doesn't, there are two possible reasons. Either we don't see him clearly, or we don't see ourselves clearly. Either way, it is God's words clearly explained through the working of his spirit that clears away the fantasies that we think are reality. The the grief of law ignored and sin committed, that will be part of your lives until the second coming of Christ. It is only then that we are told that every tear will be wiped away. And yet we don't want to stay in this place of grief. Our text does not stay there. I'm sure you noticed. And so we need to look at our third point now, The joy of understanding. The joy of understanding. There are two reasons why Ezra, Nehemiah, and the Levites don't want the Israelites to stay in this place of weeping. The first reason really just came down to the calendar. Uh, The first day of the seventh month, which we're told that's this day, was supposed to be the Feast of Trumpets. The Feast of Trumpets. Um, That's what they're referring to when they say that this day is holy. They say that a couple times. You see, the the Feast of Trumpets was supposed to be a joyful festival. The, you know, trumpets, that's a symbol of victory. That's a happy sound. And yet here, everybody's weeping. In fact, verse 10, uh, we see the plan for the second half of the, the day was they were supposed to go back and have these great feasts with their family. But... The plan's not working out so well here. You can almost imagine the governor, Nehemiah, saying to Ezra, you did your job a little too well there, brother. (laughs) And so they have to remind the people, look, this is a holy day. 
Don't mourn and weep. This isn't how it's supposed to go. But you see, there's a second, more important reason that they can move from weeping to rejoicing. It sort of skates a little bit under the radar, but we know it's here because there's, there's a dramatic shift in their understanding of God's words. Okay, just, just notice something with me, right? If you, go, if you look at verse 8, you'll see that we're told because of the reading, because of the clear explanation of God's words, the people understood it, and then they begin to weep. Okay, so they understood it, and they're weeping. Yet in verse 12, at the end, we're told that because, again, they had understood the words that were declared to them, they rejoiced greatly. Something in their understanding of God's words has dramatically shifted that can't be explained simply by, oh, that's right, I forgot, it's festival day. And it's, it's not that they understood wrongly in verse 8. It's just that they didn't understand fully. The crucial piece of information they needed must be Ezra's words at the end of verse 10. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. You see, they've come face to face with their weakness. They've realized in one dreadful, clarifying moment that the law of the Lord is not their strength. They can't keep it. They've just been reminded of the past of their people. They couldn't do it either. Woe are we. When we add up everything that we've done, we, we've not done any better than our forefathers. So what is their strength? What is their stronghold? God's joy. Maybe that answer leaves you feeling a little bit mystified. Like, well, what does that mean? What is the joy of the Lord? But the answer is quite obvious to these people. They get it immediately. They've just marinated in Scripture for six hours. What is, what is God's joy? It's so clear and yet so often missed. What does God rejoice to do? What does he do over and over again throughout the history of his people? What is he willing to pay whatever he has to pay to make happen? God's joy is to save his people. The brightest, sunniest message of God's word that it tells over and over again is a word of redemption. The whole Bible tells the story. The first five books tell it, and it just gets better and better and clearer and clearer the more the story is told. The, the gospel, you, you understand, is dynamic. It fills you alternatively with both sorrow and joy. But the goal of the gospel the end point is the most joyful feast of all, the final feast in the new heavens and the new earth. We get a picture of it here in verse 12. The people go to a feast and they rejoice greatly. Why? They have fully understood God's words and there's nothing in this life more important. Do you understand the word of the Lord to you today?
His words are to be pursued with intentionality. They are to be prioritized in your life. They will show you your need. They will show you your shame. So make sure you see your strength as well. It's not in you. Thank the Lord. Your strength is the joy of the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is to save all who call upon his name. He sent his only son, Jesus, truly the joy of his heart, to be a stronghold, to be your strength. And Jesus will lead you from sadness to joy. He will lead you from great loss to inestimable gain, from weeping to feasting. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. You do not leave us in a place of blindness. You do not leave us in a place of self-satisfied fantasy. But Lord, as we see the truth of your word, we understand that we are far, far from you. And there is cause for weeping, for we have not treated you as one treats those they love. Indeed, we have not honored you as our creator. And Lord, we weep, for we do desire as your people to know you better, to pursue your law more, indeed, even to, to be more intentional about understanding your word. And we find every day that we fail, and this is a part of our lives. So, Lord, we accept. We accept the tears. We accept the weeping, knowing, Lord, that it shows us um, that the only, the only strength we have is not in ourselves, but in you, in Christ. For in Christ, your strength is fulfilled. Your arm to save is shown to us in Christ. And we know, Lord, that it is your joy to save. You show us over and over again your willingness, your desire, your yearning to save all who turn to you. And we turn to you today and we ask for salvation. We ask, Lord, for sanctification, for an increased abiding in Christ, that we might trust him and him alone and grow in his love. I pray this in his name.